sang and you understand that it is uh, singing is an integral part of our corporate worship to God. Uh, singing is something that I don't want ever um, to diminish to you. Uh, I want uh, you all to sing loud and sing proud and sing heartily for the Lord. And um, music and singing has an emotive uh, effect on our hearts that it ties us to the truths that we sing. And so I commend singing to you. And you don't have to be Adele, um, but you know anyone can. Any one of us can sing, and and there's uh, nothing wrong with singing, um, even if you sing off key. All right, so I commend that to you. Well, turn your Bibles with me to the Book of Matthew, the Book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we we reach a a tipping point. We reach a transition of sorts tonight uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the sermon um, that I present for you tonight, I've titled The Essential Law. The Essential Law. And we'll be focusing on uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to verse 20. And here we find... Um, a tipping point, we find a transition, we find um, the start of a new section as Jesus will begin unfolding what it means to live in his kingdom according to his laws and his rules. Uh, but first he has to clarify and first he has to submit to us what I believe is his entire main point of this sermon. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, but before we read Matthew chapter 5, I want to read to you a verse from the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, uh, verse 97 reads this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. It's just one verse out of 176 verses in the longest chapter of the Bible. And Psalm 19, when you read Psalm 19, you read uh, a song that describes the preciousness, the loveliness, and the immeasurable value of God's law. Uh, tonight we are examining a very important yet often difficult topic. Um, this topic will be important for us moving forward. Uh, into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount because much of Jesus' sermon is centered around it. Namely, what is God's law? Why is it important? And what does it mean when Jesus says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Uh, so let me put forth to you this important truth that you must not only come to grips with but also accept and embrace and love and cherish. And namely this, God's law, God's law is not only applicable to your life, it is absolutely essential. God's law is not only applicable to your life, it is absolutely essential. You must, you must obey God's law. 
Um, oftentimes, you won't find me giving such absolutes. But this one I stand by because it's from Scripture. You must obey God's law. Let tonight's text show you that love and obedience to God's law must be predicated upon your love for Christ and your understanding of what he's come to do. But at the end of the day, you must obey God's law. If you are a Christian, you must obey God's law. So uh, we're breaking up these four verses into three parts. And simply, I've just titled them, um, Jesus' mission, Jesus' promise, and Jesus' thesis. His mission, his promise, and his thesis. But, but, before diving into our text today, I'm not even going to read it yet. Before diving into our text today, I want to spend a good first portion opening up the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible. They say, scholars say, theologians say, pastors say, if you understand the Torah, you will come to understand the rest of Scripture. If you understand the first five books, you will understand the rest of Scripture. What that means for us is to always go back to the beginning. Always go back to see where things began. God's initial first acts of creation, condemnation, his acts of covenant and promise, all these things will set the trajectory for the entire rest of the Bible. Uh, much like how a ship's course is determined by the angle of the rudder, uh, the angle of the rudder of Scripture is set and charted within the first five books. Uh, these first, first five books are known as the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah, or in Greek, the Pentateuch. They establish God's promises to man, chiefly through a man named Abraham and his offspring, known as Israel. Uh, these promises are given through what is known as what are known as covenants. Covenants are enduring promises uh, of God that is established between man, and there are different blessings and curses that are uh, involved and described within each covenant. Most commonly, uh, you have what's referred to as the foundational covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a unilateral promise to Abraham, meaning God undertakes to uphold the conditions of this promise, of fulfilling this promise by himself, unilaterally, for the benefit of Abraham, the recipient, and his promised offspring who will grow to become the nation of Israel. The rest of Genesis goes on to describe the lives of Abraham and his sons, and the faith that was involved. Abraham was a man who lived by faith. He moved from his pagan culture and country known as Ur into the land of Canaan, which was promised to be eventually given over to him and his offspring, what we know as the promised land. His sons Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph complete this initial narrative of faith. And we, the reader, at the end of Genesis, when you re reach the end of Genesis, we find ourselves, as we find ourselves with the people of Israel, not in the promised land, but rather in a different country known as Egypt. Um, the narrative of Genesis sets the context for the following four books. In Genesis, you find no laws given by God uh, if you don't count the first and only law given in the garden. 
uh, but rather Genesis is centered around the establishment of a covenant and that response of faith. However, by the time you reach Exodus, you'll find, although the narrative continues, moving from Joseph to a man named Moses, the majority of Exodus and then Leviticus and then Numbers, these books are centered around the law, the law of God. First introduced in Exodus 20, here we have the people of Israel at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And their leader Moses has gone up to meet God in person. And there God will give Moses and the people of Israel his law, first in the form of the Ten Commandments. The law is the meat of the Torah. The law is the heart and the soul behind these books. The giving of the law and its delineation is the reason why Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy exist in the first place. Here we have the need for God's law put forth to us in Genesis after the events in the garden. Um, we have the deliverance and the occasion of the law in Genesis that the people had to be delivered from bondage. We have the explanation and the specifics found in Leviticus that it is only through the blood of another that can atone for sin. And we have our first major disobedience found in Numbers, where the people refused to go into the promised land because they were afraid. And then God cursed them, and that first generation was not allowed to enter the promised land. And then lastly, we have the giving again or the re-giving or the second law as Deuteronomy is called in Deuteronomy where Moses, as before he dies and before the second generation of Israelites, Moses gives the charge, the same charge God gave the first generation to enter the promised land and be that priestly nation that represented God to all the surrounding countries. The law, in short is the standard or the expectation of God. It is based upon God's character and it reveals God's will. Uh, in brief, the law is from God, it is by God, and it's for God's people. When God's people obey and adhere to God's law, they receive blessings from that obedience. And when they disobey God's law and they break it, they receive curses for said disobedience. The people of Israel received God's law at Sinai and made a covenant before God that they would keep God's law and do as it says. Um, this is known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant or the First Covenant. First implying a second or new covenant that will replace the old. The law is an extension of God's character. When one studies the law of God, they will see God in that law. They will see his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness, his kindness, his justice, and his seriousness towards sin. They will observe their need for salvation. They will be pointed to a coming Savior. They will see their own sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. And ultimately, they will see that they fall utterly, totally, completely short of keeping that law. And they will be convicted by it. All of these things and more embody God's law. 
the Apostle Paul calls, calls God's law holy, righteous, and good in Romans. And he describes it as our guardian or tutor showing us the right way to live before God in Galatians. And he calls it an arouser of sin. God's law will stir within our fallenness, within our fleshliness, a desire to sin and rebel. Not because God's law is evil or has evil intentions, but because when we're matched up against God's law, our fallenness stirs and rebels and bristles against it. Because by nature, by instinct, and by choice, we have that inherent desire. Uh, take, for example, a child in the kitchen with his mother. You might have heard this analogy before. And the mother is cooking a soup on the stove and tells her child to not touch the stove. Why? Because it's hot and it might burn him. Now, don't touch the stove, don't touch the pot, and definitely do not touch the flame. What does the child do? Instinctively, naturally, uh, because a law was given, the child immediately seeks and conjures up and desires to find a way to disobey that law that was given to him. This is but a micro example of a macro reality. We all have been exposed to the holiness of God through the holiness of his law. And by nature and by choice, we have chosen to disobey. Sin and death then becomes the punishment for breaking God's law. Now, in the first five books in the Torah, the question we as the reader must ask ourselves is this. Does this law save a person? By keeping the law, does it make one righteous? Will one's sinful condition and sinful standing before God be made pure and righteous through the keeping of this law? The short technical answer is this. Yeah, sure it can. The long, real, honest answer is no. For to be counted righteous through the law, every line and every letter of the law must be kept to perfection. So for an already fallen man who's already in sin, at his birth, that is impossible. Therefore, to prove one's righteousness through the law alone is complete and utter foolishness, a, a wasted endeavor. Long story short, you read the rest of your Old Testament. That is what the Jews tried to do, what Israel tried to do. And they still try to do this to this day. They developed laws to help them keep laws that help them keep the law. The Pharisees were incredibly pious men. And they cared deeply about their obedience to God's law. Not because they cared about God, but they cared about themselves. And this is the context we find our text in. If you remember that first message we had when we studied the crowds. Um, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. But he's also keeping in mind those in the crowd. Because his message is equally applicable to both of these groups. For the Pharisees, for the scoffers, this message was a message of condemnation. Because they trusted in their own strength to be able to perfectly keep the law and be made righteous through it. That is impossible. But for the disciples, 
This message was a message of comfort. Because as a disciple, the disciple trusts in another. The disciple needs and desires a Savior who can keep the law to every letter and every line. And the disciples see the righteousness of that Savior. God's law shows us our deep need for Jesus. His life, His death, and His resurrection, as well as showing us what type of life we should live in response. Jesus is the reason why the law and obeying the law is essential. And so He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the God-man, is the only one, the only person who can ever keep the law perfectly, as he is fully and equally God and fully and equally Man, when we examine ourselves in the mirror of God's law, this word, we come to two logical responses. One, I cannot keep this law. And two, I need another to keep it for me. And this places us right at our first point. Jesus' mission. Look at me again What? Verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come? What would you respond? There would be plenty, many things to say in response to that kind of a question. You can say, to make way for man to have eternal life with God, John 3.16. To take away the sins of the world. Uh, To become sin who knew no sin so that the elect of God may become his righteousness. Uh, To defeat the curse of sin and remove the sting of death. To crush Satan and his demons and his earthly and worldly kingdom and establish a new heavenly kingdom on earth. We can go on and on, but for this sermon, for our text, one goal Jesus had in mind was to fulfill the law and all righteousness. This aspect of Christ's mission is so important that it is inextricably linked to the establishment of his kingdom. Uh, We studied the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, who they are, uh, what they're like, their attitudes. Uh, But now Jesus moved to explain who this citizen of his kingdom must be. And he first explains that the law of God here on earth is one and the same as 
the law and his kingdom in heaven. Jesus starts by affirming the necessity of God's law. But understand that God's law is only necessary when it is upheld and obeyed. If you have anarchy in the streets and no one to enforce a law, a law is pointless and useless. Jesus has come because he recognizes that the world is completely and totally full of lawbreakers. Every one of us is a lawbreaker. Sinners, to put it more succinctly. Therefore, when sin abounds, the purpose and goodness of God's law diminishes. Where sin abounds, the purpose of God's law diminishes. God will not stand for that. He will not have his character be trampled upon by the sin of man. So therefore, Jesus has come to fulfill what man cannot and will not fulfill. Christ upholds, he promotes, he obeys God's law first and foremost for the glory and honor of his Father. He will not stand for God's law being ridiculed and mocked by the sins of man. Therefore, Christ has come to obey. Therefore, any notion of abolishing God's law or getting rid of it is completely outrageous to him. If Christ were to come to abolish or get rid of God's law, He would, in essence, be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Just because man and the world has become corrupt, there is no reason to remove and abolish something that is inherently good because evil man cannot and will not submit to it. Christ in no way would go against the will of his father and God's law is built into the will of God. Side note, God's will for your life If you ever wonder what that is, his will for your life is to follow him and obey him, obey his law. So when you are trying to figure out God's plan for your life or what school to go to or what job and career to pursue or who to date and who to marry and all these questions that you might have burning in your mind, understand that when you are seeking God's honor and his glory in whatever you do, Know that as you walk with him, as you abide with him, God's will becomes absolutely simple and clear. When you walk with him, you can do what you want because you're walking with him. So Christ has not come to abolish but to fulfill. What does it mean that Christ fulfills the law? That term fulfill means to fill up to the fullest. It means to be made complete or whole. Fulfilling the law is slightly different, say, from fulfilling a prophecy. When a prophecy and scripture is fulfilled, there is an indication from the author that that particular prophecy has been fulfilled or completed. Christ fulfilling the law is obeying the law perfectly without fault. There is not some kind of deficiency or incompleteness to Christ's obedience. In every single point of the law, Christ has done it both in deed and in motivation. There is no begrudging obedience. There is no delayed obedience. There is no um, half-hearted obedience. There is joyful, humble, submissive obedience 
every single time from the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us can say that is true for us. Oftentimes, we obey, but we obey in anger. Oftentimes, we obey, but we obey in bitterness and in resentment. Oftentimes, we obey after making a plethora of excuses. And oftentimes, we never fully obey at all, even though we said we would obey. That is not true with Jesus. He obeyed the law, and he fulfilled all of the prophets. All of the Old Testament requirements has fulfilled, been fulfilled to perfect completion, finishing 100% every single time. Furthermore, Jesus affirms the enduring nature of the law. Many Christians and churches today deny the usefulness or the importance or the essentialness to the Old Testament. Christians, for some reason, write off the Old Testament as old, outdated, not applicable anymore. Uh, They say, they make weird claims that the God of the Old Testament was some kind of grumpy, bitter, old man God that isn't the same as the God of love and grace and feel goodness in the New Testament. Absolutely rubbish. When Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, he's referring to this age before his second coming. Until that happens, everything still stands, old and new. It is all useful. It is still a guide and still a standard for us to follow. It is still the revealer of sin. The Old Testament will stand with the New Testament until all of it is accomplished, he said. Um, Not an iota, not a dot, meaning every single cross of an I, dot of a T in Hebrew will happen. None of that will be left out. Until everyone in Christ, those whom he set his love and affection on has repented and believed in faith in him until the work of Christ is done. This is good news for us. I hope you see that. This is good news for us Christians. Because since we do not know when the time or the hour of Jesus' return We can continue to submit ourselves, apply ourselves to God's law. We can continue to be diligent and be faithful in obedience. To set an example for those um, of what it means to be transformed by the gospel and motivated by love to submit our lives for Christ. We can continue to do that. We can continue being about our mission, the Great Commission. To make disciples. Evangelism can't happen in heaven. Because all will be saved. And so until Christ has come, we can continue to submit ourselves to God's law and show how good it is to be under him. Christian, the gospel always comes first. I want to make that abundantly clear to you. Obedience to God's law is the fruit of of believing in the gospel. You can never earn your salvation through obeying the law. We established that already. 
but you can demonstrate the evidence of your salvation through your obedience. Obedience, as a professor of mine once remarked, obedience is the friend of assurance, not the parent. Obedience is the friend of assurance. When you obey, Scripture says then you know you are a child of God. Read 1 John. Obedience fuels your assurance. If you are walking with the Lord, you are delighting yourself in Him, and you are obeying Him and His law, um, Scripture promises that you can have greater and greater confidence that you are His. And so this brings us to our second point. It brings us to Christ's promise. Jesus' promise in verse 19. It reads, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus continues to say by way of universal application, whoever, anyone in which this applies. Whoever annuls or laxes or loosens, the literal term is to loose. Whoever loosens the least of these commandments, the, the smallest, the most mundane commandment and teaches other to do so, shall be called <clears throat> the least in the kingdom of heaven. If there ever comes a time in which you hear or you are taught that obedience to God is not essential in your life, stop listening to that person. Stop listening to them. A Christian cannot coast their way into heaven. A Christian cannot be saved from their sins just to respond by thinking that you can just prop your feet up on the coffee table of your life and think that by doing nothing with your life, you now can go to heaven because I'm saved by Jesus. That is absolutely false. That is a false teaching known as antinomianism. Big word. But be aware of it. Galatians 2.20. I hope many of you know this verse. is absolutely clear. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Obedience is the necessary, essential response to the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. I hope you understand that. If you identify and you say, I am a Christian, you identify and say, I obey Christ. Because you have been saved by so great a Savior and now your response, your response cannot be but complete and utter devotion to Him. Jesus says, if you loved me, you would obey my commandments. If you love someone, you would do what they ask of you. Not out of obligation, not begrudgingly, like how some of you treat your parents when they ask you to do something, but out of love. Out of a deep, deep love for that person. And this must be true for you and your Savior, Jesus. Therefore, Jesus' promise, promises that for those Christians who promote obedience to God's law, whoever does them and teaches them, and they do so out of a motivation of love, there lies the promise of greatness 
in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in heaven is the complete inverse of greatness on earth. People today chase greatness by chasing clout, by taking fancy pictures in fancy places, wearing fancy clothes and posting them on Instagram, by making provocative and strange dances on TikTok, by stepping on other people in life so that they can get ahead. That is not true greatness. Greatness in the eyes of God, as we have studied already, is service, is meekness, is lowliness. Greatness is the humbling of oneself before the glory and holiness of God and devoting oneself to Him. Desire to be great in God's eyes. That does not mean seek to elevate yourself above everyone else in your Christianity but it means to go down, to go low. John the Baptist said of himself in relation to Christ, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Jesus would then go on to call John the greatest of anyone born of a woman. Figure that. Wow. So you submit your life Submit your heart to God's law. Go low. And in doing so, he's the one who lifts you up. Lastly, Jesus' thesis. Jesus' thesis in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If there is one teaching, one verse that sums up the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount, it would be chapter 5, verse 20, this verse. He says, For I tell you, or for I say to you, or amen, amen, truly, truly. Whenever you see Jesus use that language, pay attention, because what he is about to say is incredibly important that he wants you to get that unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus lays out with absolute clarity what it takes for someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven or vis-a-vis what it means to be saved. Your righteousness must be exceedingly greater than the righteousness of the self-righteous religious leaders. These men who touted themselves to be extra godly, extra holy, better than everyone else at keeping God's law. Your righteousness must be greater than that. At first glance, you may wonder, how in the world is that even possible? First, understand the righteousness of these men was no true godly righteousness at all. They were as dead in their sins and trespasses as we are. Second, understand, their righteousness was only a self-perceived righteousness, not from God. Uh, They saw themselves as righteous and only in their own eyes were that true. Third, understand when you have the righteousness of another, one who is truly righteous, then your righteousness Righteousness will far surpass and exceed any sort, any element of self-righteousness. From here on out, Jesus will explain what it means to be truly righteous. He will unpack the law and explain what it truly means and how to apply it righteously. 
But all of that is predicated upon the Beatitudes we just studied. And that's the connection here. We first must be poor in spirit. We first must hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness of another, before any of this, any of these explanations of the law makes any sense. Jesus' thesis, his entire point of his sermon is outside of him and his righteous life. No one can ever be made righteous. Thus, no one can ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Everything that follows from here on out will be built upon this point. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need to be declared righteous by God or justified by God. For any of this, any of this, any of this about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, you first must be made righteous by God through faith, before any of that makes sense. You must trust that it is only through Jesus Christ can you ever be made right before God. And therefore, you must repent and believe in that truth. You must trust in the gospel. The gospel must be of first importance to you. Without the gospel, you are nothing but a dead man or a dead woman walking. This point, this gospel, I must emphasize to you again and again. Because even after this, even after we study this Sermon on the Mount, even after you graduate from high school, you move out of your homes and you start your own families, even after all of that, some of you, some of you will continue in the delusion that you are a Christian. When in fact you are not. Because the gospel has not gripped you. It has not transformed you. You have not come to terms with the truth that outside of Christ you are completely and utterly lost in the deadness of your sin. If you do not believe in the gospel, I must implore you. I do implore you. I implore you before we go any further, believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe in the work of salvation he accomplished on the cross. Repent of any secret, unrepented sin. Renounce any kind of self-righteousness and identify solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do that tonight. Do not wait. Believe in Jesus and be saved. And for those of us who Christ Jesus is eternally precious, Resolve yourselves. Submit yourselves to God's law. Submit yourself to obey God's law because from here on out, we will unpack the specifics. We will unpack the law and how we relate through it with other people. We will unpack true piety. We'll unpack true godliness. We'll unpack true prayer and what it means to pray and how to pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 19. May this attitude 
reflect our attitude when we approach God's law and his word. Let us pray. Father God, we, whenever we look into the mirror of your word and we see our reflection, we see an ugly sight. We see one that is marred by sin and we know that uh, outside of you, we would be without hope. We would be lost. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank, we thank you first for your law, that you through it have revealed to us our need for a Savior. And that now, now that you've presented Christ to us, we have seen him, seen his glory, seen his loveliness, trusted in him and believed in him. Uh, may we now go back to your law. And it may not be, may not be uh, so much a revealer of our sin, though that still remains true, God, but may it be our life's refrain, and that we seek ourselves to submit to you through it, to obey you, uh, to keep your commandments because we love you. May it be true for every one of us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.